Thank you, Tim, for reading our scripture, and thank you for being here tonight. Grateful for your presence. We are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight, and by way of background, the passage that was read a moment ago, Acts chapter 17, serves as somewhat of a backdrop to our study this evening. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, specifically verses 1 through 10, the entirety of the chapter. Again, we're very grateful for your presence. If you're visiting, we want you to, we certainly want you to know that we appreciate so much your willingness to come and to be a part of our worship tonight. We hope that the time that you spend with us will benefit you. We're very grateful for the opportunity that we have on a weekly basis to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. I also know that we have a number of folks that are unable to be with us, but they have the opportunity to watch by way of our streaming online. And we want to welcome them. We're always grateful for those who have the opportunity to be a part of our worship service. Tonight, I want us to think for a minute or two about the church that made a difference. And I want to begin by saying that as Christians, our goal is to make a difference in the world in which we live. Individually speaking, we have a tremendous task to be salt and light in a darkened world. Collectively speaking, the church is, as Paul said, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so as the psalmist said many, many years ago in Psalm 43, our goal is to send out God's light and God's truth. And so in looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want us to look at a congregation that really developed as a result of the preaching and teaching efforts of Paul and Silas. And so I want to begin by, first of all, talking about their deliverance by the Lord. And Paul here is writing to the church at Thessalonica. He identifies himself along with Silas and Timothy. And Silas, as you well know, was a seasoned veteran. He had spent quite a bit of time with the Apostle Paul following, following the uh, break between Paul and Barnabas. You remember they had a disagreement. And as a result of that, Paul chose Silas and Barnabas and Mark went their way. And uh, as a result of that, a lot of good was done by both parties. Included in this group is Timothy, and Timothy became Paul's son in the faith, according to 1 Timothy 1 in verse 3. And Paul met Timothy in Derby, and you can read about that back in Acts chapter 16. Now, as we think about their deliverance by the Lord, I want you to go with me for just a moment by way of background information to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we have an account of the presentation of the gospel. And really there are two things here. First, Paul reached out, Paul and Silas reached out to the people in the city. And then there was a reasoning process that occurred with those who were living in Thessalonica. Now Paul and Silas, you remember back in chapter 16, Paul had received what has been called the Macedonian call. Paul saw a man in a vision saying, come over and help us into Macedonia. And so Paul makes his way into Macedonia. Uh, he answers that call, doesn't he? So in chapter 16, we have a record of Paul and Silas. They had been in the city of Philippi. And as a result of their labors there, they were imprisoned. Their feet were fastened in stocks. And the Bible says that at midnight they prayed, sang praises to God. An earthquake occurred. They were released. And later, they left the city of Philippi. And so upon leaving Philippi, they make their way through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and they came to the city of Thessalonica. Now Philippi was about 
well, probably a little less than 100 miles to the city of Thessalonica. This is Paul's second missionary tour or journey. And so when they make their way into the city of Thessalonica, the Bible says there was a synagogue of the Jews. So what do you think the Apostle Paul did? I think Luke says it very well. In verse 2, the Bible says, Then Paul, as his custom was. What Luke is saying is that Paul had a habit of reaching out to people, didn't he? And in this context, where's he going to go? To the synagogue. Why? Because the synagogue would be a place where Jews would assemble. So he had a ready-made audience. And so the Bible tells us that Paul, as his custom was, went into them. Now, a couple of things very quickly. First, I think about Paul reaching out to these people. Was Paul concerned about the lost? Boy, you better believe it. Paul was interested in the souls of people, wasn't he? He was convinced as he wrote to the Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Paul understood well that the penalty for sin was death, right? Do you remember Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So in light of the fact that that people were lost and dying in sin in the first century, Paul realized that what they needed was the gospel. And so he sought to reach out. And let me just ask this question. Are there people that you're reaching out to right now? Are you concerned about the lost? I was talking, actually got a text from a friend of mine the other day. And he was telling me about a fellow that takes little yellow post-it notes and writes names of people that he's trying to make a difference, or rather wrote the names of people that he's trying to convert and place those in his Bible. And the reason being, it would keep their names before him. What about you? What are you doing to make a difference in the lives around you? Those you work with, the people you attend school with, your neighbors, your family members, your friends. I mean, think about the responsibility that we have. Jesus said, go therefore... Go therefore make disciples of all the nations. The Great Commission was not given specifically, or rather wasn't given only to the apostles, was it? But rather, all today have the responsibility of reaching out with the gospel of Christ. So first he reached out to these people, but then secondly, Luke tells us he reasoned with them. In verse 2, the Bible says, Paul, as his custom was, went into them, And for three Sabbaths, three weeks, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now look at verse 3. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So here's the Apostle Paul. In one hand, he has an open Bible, doesn't he? And with that open Bible, he is, to the best of his ability, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and reasoning with these people about the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. The Jews had been the custodians of Scripture. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that into their hands had been committed the oracles of God. They were conversant in the Old Testament. 
They knew what the Bible said. Some 300 plus prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And Paul is opening the Word of God and he is reasoning with them out of Scripture and saying, look, you need to understand that the Jesus that I'm preaching to you is the Christ. In other words, He's the Messiah. He is the one of whom the prophets of old foretold. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and going forward. Over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Christ. And Paul here is saying to these people, the Christ has come. Let me ask this question tonight. If somebody were to ask you about Jesus and question whether or not He is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world, what would you say? Could you defend the Christ to other people? If somebody were to ask you, okay, is Jesus really the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, what would you say? If someone were to question you about the sonship of Jesus, is he really the Son of God? How would you go about proving that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture? That he is who he claimed to be? Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear Paul, or rather Peter here, is saying, be ready to give an apologetic, a defense, a ready answer to those that ask you about your faith. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We need to know, number one, what we believe. Number two, we need to know why we believe it. And so you think about what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that every child of God, every Christian today, ought to have a defense, a ready defense for the Christ. And so... Here is Paul and Silas. They're in the city of Thessalonica. And as their custom was, and this was, this was a habit for Paul. Wherever Paul went, what's he doing? He's reaching out to people. He's trying to reason with them about the Christ, about the Son of God. Why do you think that was the case? Because he believed, as did the other apostles, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he believed, as Luke said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so here, here are Paul and Silas, and they're doing their best to share the gospel with these people. And so you think about their presentation of the gospel of truth, and we have that opportunity on a daily basis to present the truth of the gospel to people whether it be friends, family members, neighbors, acquaintances, whatever. We have that opportunity, and I would add we also have, have that responsibility. So there was the presentation of the gospel, but then what about the power of the gospel? Now I want you to see something. Hold Acts 17 and turn over to chapter 1 again just very quickly. Paul in writing to the saints in Thessalonica, identified them in verse 4 as beloved brethren, and he speaks of their election from God. The word elect here really cares with the idea of the chosen. And as we think about the chosen, the elect of God, back in, or rather over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talked about how they had been chosen for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 
He goes on to say in verse 14 that they had been called by the gospel of Christ. So here, here are Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel of Christ. The call of the gospel is an invitation, isn't it? When, when people hear the gospel of Christ, they have the opportunity and the responsibility to answer the call. If I were to call you on your cell phone tonight, if I plugged your number in and called, called you and my number came up on your phone, you could choose to answer that call or you could reject it, couldn't you? When they heard the gospel, they had the opportunity to be receptive to the call or they could have said, you know what, it's not for me. So what about that? Well, let's look back at Acts chapter 17 again, just very quickly. In verse 4, the Bible says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So you have a number of people. Whether or not these Grecians had proselyted to the Jewish religion or not is debatable. But nonetheless, you have a number of people that have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. They've had the Apostle Paul sift through the scriptures for them. As a result of hearing the truth of God, the Bible says they were persuaded. Isn't that what they did on Pentecost Day? Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter and the other apostles preached the gospel? And the Bible says, with many other words did Peter exhort and testify, saying, save yourselves from this crooked, perverse generation. There is a persuasion factor involved in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Let me give you another example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about how we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. In light of that, he would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, what do we do? He said, we persuade men. So here are Paul and Silas. They're preaching, they're teaching, they're presenting the gospel of Christ. As a result of their presentation of the truth, we have a reflection of the power of God's word. These people had been called by the gospel. They had the invitation to obey the truth. And so you think about the call of the gospel and then think about this for a minute. You have a multitude of people who have been called by the gospel and then changed by the gospel. If the gospel does not change our lives, if it doesn't transform us and make us better people, then something is amiss. What about the people to whom Paul wrote in the first century? Paul is writing in about A.D. 51 or 52. Look again, if you would, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Listen to what he said. The gospel came not in word only, but also in power. I don't know if the apostle Paul, text doesn't say in Acts chapter 17, whether he performed any miracles in the city of Thessalonica. The miraculous was intended to confirm the word, according to Mark chapter 16, verses 16 through 20. But nonetheless, the gospel radically changed the lives of people. So you want to know how so? Well, drop down, look at verse 9. 
Paul said, They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Apparently there was some in Thessalonica that had been living in pagan idolatry. And what Paul said is, look, you turned from idolatry to serve the living and true God. Over in chapter 17, when Paul makes his way to the city of Corinth, in Corinth, or rather in Athens rather, Athens is a cesspool of iniquity, as we would say. Filled with idolatry. Corinth, the same way. And in Athens, the apostle Paul had the opportunity to preach the one true living God, didn't he? He made a profound impact upon the lives of those people. So these people were changed by the gospel of Christ. Now think about, I mentioned just a moment ago, the church at Corinth. When Paul went to the city of Corinth over in chapter 18, the Bible says he spent 18 months there. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Corinth, well known for her immorality and idolatry. When he wrote his second letter, he would say, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul there saying that here were people that had been at one time steeped in sin, but now they've turned from a life of immorality and idolatry and they're now serving Almighty God. Their lives have been changed and bettered by the gospel. And as I think about people today in the 21st century, do we have something to offer the world today? Yes, we do. Are there homes tonight that need the gospel of Christ? Yes. Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, We are living among people today that need the gospel. And we talk about the problems that we face in our country. And there are not many social and moral ills that we face in this country that could not be solved if people would be receptive to the truth of the gospel. It would change this world. really would. Change our nation. Change the landscape of our nation. Now, There's a second thing I want you to, well, go back again and look at Acts 17 before before we move on. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, the Bible says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, And here's what they said about Paul and Silas. And tell me, was this not a compliment? These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These guys were wave makers, weren't they? I mean, what are they intending to do? They're trying to better the lives of people. The Jews were antagonistic in many respects to the teaching of Christ. They were antagonistic to the efforts of the apostles, the early church. Paul, it wasn't uncommon for Paul to face persecution and trials and tribulations and difficulties. When he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he recounted some of the very problems that he faced in his ministry. He would say in verse 12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul knew something about persecution. 
So this wasn't uncommon to his teaching and preaching. This isn't something that, you know, just reared its head this one time, but rather this was a part of his preaching and teaching. So what happens? Well, Paul is literally run out of town, isn't he? They, they get him out of town, get him over to the city of Berea to escape the problems that he faced, that Silas faced in Thessalonica. So having said that, turn now to chapter 1 again. We think about their deliverance by the Lord, but then secondly, note if you would, their dedication to the Lord. What's amazing is the fact that here were people that some came, came out of Judaism, some came out of idolatry, and you have all these different people coming together, don't you? And the beauty of what we read in chapter 1 is the fact that these saints developed a serving faith. Now pick up with me if you would in verse 1 again. Paul writes to the church of, of the Thessalonians, In God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Paul prayed for these people. And I think the reason Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica, he loved those people, he was concerned about those people, he was interested in their welfare, he had invested in them, had he not? So as a result of that, he's praying on their behalf. And then verse 3, here's what he says. He said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. These people had become productive in the kingdom of God, had they not? He identifies their work of faith. You can't separate faith and works, can you? We have been saved to serve. That's what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. We have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's the tenor of living a Christian life. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So here were saints. They had obeyed the gospel. Their lives had been changed. They're serving the Lord. And Paul, in reflecting upon the people that lived in Thessalonica, reminds himself of their work of faith. But then note if you would, not only were they productive in the kingdom of God, productive in their labors for the kingdom of God, but they were passionate in their labors for the kingdom of God. Listen again to what Paul said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now note, labor of love. Why do you serve the Lord? The things that you do on His behalf, whether it's visiting the sick, sending a card, a text, an email, visiting someone, reaching out to somebody, fixing a meal, the things that you do, why do you do, why do you do those things? Is it because you feel compelled to do it? You feel like somebody is forcing you to do it? Or do you do it because you want to do it? It's a labor of love. Do you remember when the Hebrew writer wrote in chapter 6, verse 10, he talked about how God is not unrighteous to forget our work and labor of love. If you love doing something, it's not work, is it? I mean, isn't that true? 
If you have a passion in life, whatever that passion might be, if you genuinely love doing something, it's not work, I promise you. And so Paul is writing to saints, and you think, you think about how, you think about what a radical difference he made in their lives. And not just in the lives of the people in Thessalonica, but really wherever the apostle Paul, he was a trailblazer, wasn't he? And you just, you look at the numbers of people that he affected for good. I mean, here was a guy that was intent on changing the world. He would say to the, to the people in Colossae, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was his anthem, wasn't it? The banner under which he sought to do business. And so he talks about their labor of love. These people had a serving faith, but not just a serving faith, but they had a sustaining faith. Listen now to what he says. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. These people had received the gospel, as Paul would say, in much affliction. Listen to what he says beginning again in verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. He said, you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So what they were going to need to get through the difficulties that they faced and enduring faith what do we need today? Is this a perfect world? This is not a perfect world, is it? Far from it. It is an imperfect world. And you think about all the difficulties and problems that we face now. These people faced persecution, affliction. They had been receptive to the truth in spite of affliction, in spite of difficulties. But as children of God, are we not going to face tough times at, in life? Sure we are. It's true, we might face persecution because of our faith in Christ, our, our desire to live for the Lord. It might not necessarily be physical in nature, but it could be verbal. It could be emotional in nature. The saints in the first century, they were well aware of what it meant to suffer for the cause of Christ. But what they needed was patience. As Paul said, patience of hope. Now back in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talked about how tribulation brings what? Patience, perseverance. And he said perseverance, character. When we suffer difficulties and face an onslaught from an unbelieving world, what Paul is saying is that builds character, doesn't it? It really helps to define who we are and what we are. And sometimes you really never know how strong you are until you face tough times, do you? I mean, if everything's going well, you really don't have a faith, a faith that's been tested. These people had been tested. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talked about people that were under the gun. He talked about the trying of their faith being more precious than gold that perishes by fire. 
They knew what it was like to suffer. And so, what do we need today? What did they need? They needed an enduring faith. Now, I want to, want to just encourage you to look at Hebrews chapter 12. The writer in the book of Hebrews is encouraging Christians to endure. Some of those folks were on the verge of giving up their faith. Some had given up. Some had gone back to Judaism. And the writer said, what you need to do is run with endurance, run with patience the race that is set before you. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, in order to make it day by day, month by month, year by year, what do we need? An enduring faith. We've got to be able to ride through the storms of life, don't we? And you think about what James said in James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James is saying that we can learn from the various things that we experience in life, difficulties. They can grow our faith, can't they? So, they had an enduring faith. They were encouraged to endure in the Lord, but then there was the expectation of the Lord. Drop down and look, if you would, at verse 10. Paul said they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. He said in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The saints in Thessalonica, they knew something about the return of Christ. Over in chapter 4, they were expressing concern. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote and sought to alleviate their fears about those who had died in Christ. He said, look, I don't want you to be misinformed about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And what he was saying is that the Lord Jesus is coming again. When he comes, he will come with his saints who have died in Christ. He said, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And so, these people were living in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Now, what I want to do, our time's gone, and I've got another point to make, and so what I'd like to do is maybe drive a peg down where we are tonight, and I really don't know how this has happened the last couple of three weeks. I usually try to get through lessons you know, one and done. But there's a lot of material here. And there's a lot of really important information, I believe, in chapter 1. And one of the things that, that stands out in our third point, the thing that we really want to focus in on, is the tremendous example that they became. And, and Paul's going to deal with that, how they became influential for the cause of Christ. And so... Lord willing, we will look at that next week. So I want to stop there tonight. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, as always, we want to encourage you to consider coming to Christ, to realize that Christ died for your sins. He died for, he, he died for the sins of everyone. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the truth. So if you're here tonight and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you would do as they did in Thessalonica. Believe the gospel. Obey the gospel. Be baptized into Christ. You will enjoy the remission of sins as they did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2.38. God will put you in the church 
Acts 2, verse 47. You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. One of which is the fact that you will live in hope of life eternal, Titus 1, verse 2. If you're here tonight, maybe for whatever reason you need the prayers of the church, maybe your life has not been what it ought to be, you've gone back into the world, and you need the prayers of the church, we'd love to pray with you and for you tonight, understanding that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?